Luke 9 and verse 57. Please give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. And he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us pray for the preaching. O Lord, our God, we come to another searching text. And we pray, Father, that the word of God as it is preached now by your minister would land in our hearts and that through the preaching of the word that the people of God would have a greater commitment to the Lord. We pray, Father, that you would enable the minister minister to preach as one who has put his hand to the plow himself, not turning back, that he would preach faithfully, looking unto Jesus and bringing the fruit of Christ's word to the people of God now. Would you cause the minister to decrease that they would only see, the people would only see him imitate Christ and follow Christ Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would enable the people of God to follow Jesus now through this text. And so we pray that the Spirit would be in the preaching of the Word. And as we come now to the Word of God preached, we pray, speak, for thy servants heareth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our text, we have a consideration of three different men. These three men are would-be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Each demonstrates a species of a lack of commitment to the Lord. Each in danger of turning away from the Lord when the Lord calls, follow me. Either their motives for following Christ was ungodly, or they had a lack of urgency in following the call of the Lord, or they did not prioritize the Lord and His kingdom as they should. They did not seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And so Christ challenges their commitment to Him. And in so doing, what He is really doing is He is challenging our own commitment to follow the Lord. For instance, one way you know this, uh, every text you know this, of course, but one way you know this, boys and girls, is you notice that the men never answer the Lord after, or it's not recorded, what their answer to the Lord is. That is deliberate, because he is challenging you and asking, what will your response be if I say, follow me? Will you give me an excuse as to why you will not follow me? We're left hanging. We don't know what they decided, because the decision is ours, ultimately, is what the Lord is putting before us. Do we have right motives? Do we have right priorities? Do we have a sufficient urgency when the Lord calls us in some way? 
Now, in all this, in all this, this is a text that is particularly aimed at those who would serve the Lord as gospel ministers. This is really the 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 prime purpose of the text, and it's because of that reason. When I was first evaluated to be um, a student under care, this was the text I chose. This is the first sermon I ever preached. Not this sermon, but this text. Because it challenges me. Do I have the right motives in seeking to serve the Lord? Do I have a sufficient urgency or will I put the call off for another day? Am I truly seeking the glory of Christ in the ministry or is it my own ease or comforts? But it goes beyond a challenge to would-be ministers, but every Christian, every disciple, to test to see if you will follow the Lord completely, if you will persevere with the Lord through thick and thin, if you will follow the Lord even when the greatest temptations under heaven, when family come between you and the Lord, will you follow Him? Would you lose all? if he called you to, to follow Christ wherever he goes. Well, lest we discover that we have been all along the almost disciple, our theme from the text is the almost disciple uncovered. The almost disciple uncovered. And we'll consider that under the three heads on your bulletin. First is counting the cost. Second is prioritizing the kingdom. And third is committing to the king. Our first heading, counting the cost. So let's consider the first of these three men. In verse 57, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. You know, this is a solemn pledge, isn't it? I will go with thee wherever you go, Lord. Now, to be fair, every Christian must make this pledge. This is really what the Lord calls us to in consecrating ourselves to him. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Where you lead, Lord, I will follow. That is meant to be your heart and my heart towards the Lord. This is a good thing to say. However, the question is, are you truly interested in going wherever the Lord goes? Will you only follow Christ if the road is smooth and the path is easy? When it does not demand something of you. When your comfort and your standing in the world is not challenged. What about when the road is hard and the path that uh, goes away from Christ seems to be the easy one? Will you still follow Christ wherever he goes? What if you find that there is a cross and there is a cross to bear on the way to glory? Will you still follow him? Or will you walk away mournfully like the rich young ruler? And that is why, contrary to all the counsel you will get from the church growth movement, in response to the man's pledge to follow Christ wherever he went, he doesn't say, excellent, great. He challenges the man. He throws a wet blanket, so to speak, over the man's enthusiasm. He says, Christ does, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere, not where to lay his head. Is this where you're going to go? Are you going to follow me wherever I go? 
Let's not forget this before we consider the man, brethren, that this was our Lord's life on the earth. It's quite staggering how he put it, if you will just meditate on it, that the lowly creatures that he himself made, his birds, his foxes, he gave them homes, but he, their creator, relinquished his right to have one on the earth. And he called himself the son of man. He is that great figure, as you know it. We, it wasn't too long ago, boys and girls, that we read through Daniel's prophecy. He's the great figure in Daniel's vision. That one who would be crowned with glory by the Almighty, by the Ancient of Days, given an everlasting dominion. But that was his state, that would be his state of exaltation, of course. And at the time here, the Son of Man says, I am in any state of humiliation to win your salvation. He had no home during his ministry. In all his gospel exertions and labors, he often went to bed in wilderness places. Even his animals had nests and holes, but not the precious Savior, who being equal to God made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a servant and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Practically, you've just seen him refused hospitality by the Samaritans, proving that this was not rhetoric, this was reality for our Savior. So as we come to the man that he challenges, he says to the man, really, will you go wherever I go? Will you go wherever I go? What if I go to hard places? What if you are sneered at for being a Christian? when you are not invited to the world's galas, when you are called to be as my Apostle Paul, who will come later, of course, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. 1 Corinthians 4.13 Are you willing to follow me there? What if I go to places that demand something of you? Will you really go wherever I go? Or do you just want to follow me? when I go to my crown of glory, but neglect to follow me when I go to my crown of thorns? Brethren, this is a searching question, isn't it? And it really separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates the fair-weather friend of Christ from his true disciples, who will say to the Lord, wherever thou goest, even if it demands my own life, I will go with thee. Even when it demands obedience to my own hurt, I will go with thee. Because thou art my happiness, my joy, and my life, my all. Well, we're not entirely sure what the man's motivation was to give this rash commitment to Christ. But we can use him to examine two archetypes of what you might call the almost disciple. One you might call the enthusiast, and the other you might call the opportunist. And they're really distinguished almost by a hairbreadth. But first, the enthusiast. You know, many will rashly make bold claims, you know, with enthusiasm that they will follow Christ wherever he goes. They're like the man who is smitten by a woman and will rashly pledge, I will love you to the end of my days. But then when the difficulty comes and the children come, he walks away from his wife and his children because things are hard. Many Christians are like that. When the pledge to follow Christ comes with a personal cost, they will ditch him. 
They're taken up by a carnal kind of excitement. And that is why they follow him. Not for his own sake, not for his own glory, not for his kingdom. I recognize that many have been sold a bill of goods by faithless ministers as well. You know, you say, they say to these folks, if you come to Christ, you will have your best life now. You will be fantastically wealthy. Or maybe he will fix your marriage and all of your cares and all your problems will be gone away. Really, they are nothing more than snake oil salesmen fleecing the people. And so when the slog comes, the reality of the difficulties and the opposition of indwelling sin, the, the world and the devil, when hardship and affliction come, these kinds of Christians will walk away from the Lord and not go wherever the Lord is calling them to go. But I will also say, as it's easy to throw stones out there, that you can find a species of this in Reformed churches all across the board. Men and women, they come into our midst because they find a faith that is historic. They find a faith that is exciting to them, is very deep. There's a a breadth of learning. There are also many books to buy, but really folks come in not much more interested than... um, the person who goes to a fancy restaurant and takes a selfie with their food. They'll take a selfie with their books. They're they're excited by certain things, even good things, but there is no vital godliness in it. There is no excitement in terms of following Christ wherever he goes, no interest in truly following the commandments of God out of love, no interest in mortifying sin and growing in grace, no interest in following him when it hurts our flesh or causes conflict with the world. Now, we ought to be enthusiastic to be with Christ. That is not the problem. But it's a carnal enthusiasm that we have to be aware of. A carnal enthusiasm will never sustain a pilgrim's walk with Christ. You see that in those who are burning out in evangelicalism today. No matter how loud the music, no matter how worked up everybody is on the stage, at some point people will walk away from it because the veneer of enthusiasm cannot sustain you as a pilgrim journeying to the celestial city. And so you'll find that sometimes these will go to Rome or Eastern Orthodoxy or just walk away from Christ entirely. And that is why Christ challenges us all. Are you truly going to go where I go? Your commitment and mine too is to go wherever he leads you, wherever he leads you by his word and in providence, you are to go. You are to go cheerfully and willingly, even if your flesh is not excited by it. On the road to glory, you should know this by now if you've been a Christian more than a week. There are hard days. There are good days or, or really smooth and blessed days where you have the mountaintop transfiguration experience that we saw not long ago. But then there are also days where you are contending with the world and your flesh. And in both times, you have to be constant with the Lord. You must run. And here's the word, boys and girls, for you. Steadfastness. You must be steady with the Lord. You're to be steadfast and thick and in thin just as married people are called to be. Boys and girls, some Sabbaths coming to church may not be the most exciting thing in the world to you. You follow Christ to church anyhow. Some days your devotional life may not draw you in as you you wish. 
You are to follow Jesus to the secret place. Some days going to war with your sin just seems like one lost cause after another, but you are to go to war anyhow and follow Christ in it. Some days Christ will call you to love your neighbor sacrificially and you will not be very excited about it, to root out bitterness, to extend forgiveness, to repent. You are to follow Christ and love your neighbor anyhow. So if that is the enthusiast whose desire to follow Christ is at the surface level, the other archetype that is in view here is the opportunist. In Matthew 8.18, which is the parallel text, you find more out about this man. He is a scribe. He is a lawyer and a teacher of the law. And why is it that you might think the Holy Spirit reveals that to us? Well, in the 20th chapter of Luke, Christ warns you about the mentality of the scribes. He says, Beware of the scribes, which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts. He told his disciples, Be wary of them. Why? They craved positions of power and they loved to be seen. For them, religion was not about being servants of the Lord. But instead, it was all about elevating themselves to be a somebody. And so this man, you think now on this man, and you can't impute necessarily these motives to him, but he's useful as as a type to investigate a certain archetype. This man may have seen the mighty miracles and the power of the Lord. And what did he want to do? It's very, very reasonable to think, here's the Messiah. I want to ride on his coattails, so to speak. I want to have a position of power and authority. And you remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And the man could very well think this man, uh, Christ, is on his way to Jerusalem for his coronation as king. And I would like to follow in that. And I would like to be his disciple in that. Of course, the man would go wherever Jesus went for that kind of thing. But would he really follow if he knew that Christ were going to his cross? Would you go if you knew that the crown Christ would first wear was one of thorns? Would you go if you knew that the placard king of the Jews would be nailed to a Roman cross? Probably not. Probably not. You see, some follow Christ not for his sake, but for theirs only, seeing him as a means to their own ends. When there is an advantage to being a Christian, there they are. There they are. If they think that they're going to have a position of power and authority, there they are. Some go to church, and you don't have to be in the church very long to realize this. They come and visit a church because they have some material need only, and they have no interest in Christ. If you have a material need, you are welcome here, but your interest has to be in Christ first. And that's the thing, people you have to see that there, is, uh, uh, there can be even mixed motives, impure motives, or no right motive at all in us. And you have to see where you are in terms of why you are following the Lord. Some will even go to church for a sense of community, and the church ends up being a social club to them. These are just my best friends, but I have no interest in Christ. I'm glad if you are friends with the brethren and you love one another. That is good. However, even that can displace Christ as the one you are here to follow. So the question really is, and maybe it just needs to be this blunt, why are you here? 
Why are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? What is your motive? Do you really follow him for his sake? Or is it for you? Is it his glory that is in your heart? Or is it your own glory? Or is it uh, anything else that we have talked about so far? You have to do business with the Lord and answer him in that. But when it comes to the ministry, especially as this text is for would-be ministers, some men do become ministers when they think there is an advantage to it. You know, you think of some churches today, especially in America, being a minister may very well be your ticket to being a millionaire. There's some kinds of churches like that. But you tell that same man, right, who's there every week, maybe, that he would be poor to follow Christ. And you will see that man go off and do something else. See, every man who's in the ministry has to ask the question, would I do this if there was no earthly gain whatsoever and it was only for the glory of Christ? Friends, boys and girls, especially at your age, you need to remember the Christian life is not a rainbow road with lollipops showering down. It comes with cross-bearing. It will have you be a pilgrim in this world. You and I, as we think on the Lord, you know how he challenges this man and he says that he has nowhere to lay his head. You and I are not greater than the master. You and I have to realize that we may be called to this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.11, Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. This is exactly the life of the Lord. No certain dwelling place. And we have to be okay with that. Are you okay with that? Not just men, not just ministers, not just mothers, children, all of us. Would you be okay with that? To have no certain dwelling place and still follow Christ? Is that your level of commitment to the Lord? Or would you go away mournfully as a rich young ruler, hang up your Bible and find something else to do on Sundays? If so, you are not worthy of him, me either. Thing is, friends, I suppose if he can ask you all that, um, he can ask for far less than that. He asks, if I say follow me and repent of your sin, would you do that much for me? no matter what that sin is, no matter how precious it is to you. He says, I will even give you the power for it. But are you willing to get rid of it? He says uh, to you, if I tell you to follow me in some matter of obedience, but you will be unpopular with friends and family, would you do that much for me? He asks, if you follow me, will you deny yourself and take up your cross? Would you do that much? even though my Holy Spirit will bear the burden with you. You see, friends, he can ask you for any of these things. And you're going to see it elevated as we go to the next two men. Will you really go whithersoever I go? And that's a searching question for us all. Second, the second heading is prioritizing the kingdom. The second man is in verses 59 and 60. And he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. So this man has a calling from the Lord. Unlike the first who came to the Lord himself, this one is called by the Lord, follow me. These two words that you have heard already in this gospel. 
And he is given a specific calling. He is called to be a preacher of the gospel. Go thou and preach the kingdom of God. But the man, he hesitated and he halted. He said he had something important to do first ahead of that. Suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus' response, let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Now, beloved, first reflect on Christ's response before we work our way through it. Just put yourself in the man's shoes. Your father must be buried, but Jesus says, you serve me and leave his funeral to others. Would you still follow him when that is before you? Or would you say, this is terribly unfair. This is terribly cruel of the Lord. Now this is, to be sure, an extraordinary situation. He doesn't call all of us to forsake our parents' burial or funeral. He does at times. Uh, I reflected on this. Unless my mom is converted, I will not be able to go to my mom's funeral because of the religious observances that will be there, the the paganism and the idolatry, uh, the ancestor worship even. But how hard is it to refuse our family even in such times, beloved? To be the one who has to say no and bear a terrible cost to follow Jesus Christ. And he's getting at some of the most dearest and nearest people in our lives. And he is saying, I am supreme over them all. And I come first. Is this not the test? Is he not able to demand this of us, if not more? Did he not demand of Abraham even? Are you willing to sacrifice your only son? He can demand this and more. And as an aside, what Christ was asking of the man was not new. The old Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, 7, and 8 consecrated a man to his service to be so set apart that they were not to make themselves unclean for their dead family. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. The Lord has called his laborers to this level of consecration before, and he can demand it of any who will be ministers of the New Testament. Not as a requirement in the New Testament, but in his providence, he may well call a man to have to miss the funeral of a loved one in order to serve his kingdom, in order to follow Christ in some way. But there are also things here we can glean about superstition and sentimentality, especially concerning funeral services and their often superstitious nature. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Now this saying has great significance. Who are the dead here? Now, boys and girls, you know this. He's not speaking of the physically dead because physically dead people can't bury anyone. He is speaking of the spiritually dead, isn't he? Ephesians 2.1, those who are dead in their sins and trespasses and sins. They're not born again. And uh, he says, in effect, let them take care of the one that is dead and think of your dead father in that too. Will your service at his graveside shoot him to heaven? No, he is dead. It is appointed unto men once to die and after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. The dead father had either received eternal life in Christ 
or eternal condemnation for his sins. And the funeral service is going to change none of that. Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. He says to the man, you man can be a preacher of the gospel. This is your calling. Souls that are alive are perishing. Learn of me and become a minister of the gospel and preach to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses that they might have life. This is the priority even over the funeral service. And this must be your burden if you're called to the ministry, not your dead father. But to go and preach the good news is the priority. Now you might ask, because this is a very specific test. You might ask, are we not to have a natural affection for our kin? And we are absolutely so. We are to honor our father and our mother. That is the fifth commandment. It's not wrong to go and bury our father and mother. Normally, you are called to do that. But whenever the calling of Christ conflicts with your parents or any family, the question is, who will you serve, child of God? And Christ says, serve me. Serve me. Now, you might want to just turn a few pages over in your Bible to Luke 14, because this text is very helpful. Very helpful in understanding what the Lord has to say here. It's a complement to this text. We'll look at verse 25 and following. Luke 14, 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. So there's great multitudes following him, saying, I will follow you. And he says in verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Do you see how high the calling is, brethren, to being a disciple of Christ? So high that your greatest earthly loves, father, mother, wife, husband, children, brothers, or sisters, your love for such is to be counted as hatred in comparison to the Lord. The Lord is not saying hate them. He's not saying you cannot love them. That's not what he's saying. He is saying when you set them next to Christ, your love for them, your love for Christ rather, must be so great that in comparison it will seem as hatred. In fact, I want you, and you have some experience, some of you do, many of you do, consider it from your family member's perspective. Doesn't it seem to them that you hate them in comparison to Christ? Is that not the accusation at times? Why don't you love me? Because you are following Christ in some way and not me. Right? This is what the Lord is calling us to. There are going to be times where your own family members are going to think that you hate them, though you don't. It's just that you love Christ more. It's going to seem as hate. If I don't go to my mother's funeral, she's not converted. My family is going to say, I hate my mom. That's essentially what they are going to say to me. But I don't hate my mom. I just love Jesus more. And when the clash comes between even natural affection and the Lord Jesus Christ, the supernatural affection we have for the Lord wins. And it's not just about them, our family. Here in verse 26, Christ even says it applies to self-love. Yea, and his own life also. 
Isn't this what the Bible says? You no longer live for yourself, but 2 Corinthians 5 says, He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. The life that you live is lived in view of the one who died for you. Christ. And is now alive. And now your life is united to His. He is your life. And you live for Him first and foremost. Self-love, self-living, gone. He says, without that, you cannot even be my disciple. But now, Christian, you live for him who died for you and rose again. Verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Famously, Christ says in this text, count the cost in verses 28 through 30. I won't read it, but you notice that there are those uh, if we don't count the cost, who will mock us, right? You started to walk with the Lord and then you turned away. Did you not count the cost? So have you counted the cost? Is there something that you are unwilling to walk away from to serve Christ? Consider it. Friends, family members, prestige, wealth, ease. Count the cost, brethren. You Turn it around the other way. Christ in his rights to call you to leave all. And he may well do it. Count the cost before he calls you. And Jesus says, nothing is out of bounds in verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. He doesn't call all disciples to forsake all, but all disciples must be willing to forsake all, to follow him. And this urgency to follow Christ is heightened in those who are called to preach the gospel. This man was called by Christ to preach the everlasting gospel of grace. And the thing is, if you feel a sense, men, to preach the gospel, if Christ has called you to be a minister, you are not to linger. You are not to hesitate. You are to consult your elders and seek to follow Christ. You're to swiftly put in order what needs to be put in order to pursue him. Many times a man has a sense of a call to the ministry and doesn't pursue it, does nothing with it. They say, I must care for this or that other thing first. And what happens? They never go into the field. How unlike Levi. When Christ told Levi, follow me, it's not been so long ago. What did Levi do, brethren? He left all. That's what the text says. He left all, rose up, and followed him. I have some time to treat this, so let me return to the topic of funeral services because I think this is an opportune time. The Lord says, yes, let the man be buried. And so we are to treat uh, the dead with care. We are to bury them anticipating the resurrection, which is why we bury the dead as Christians. However, the funeral service can often become a superstitious affair, uh, plainly in the Roman Catholic service, but Protestants aren't immune from this. And I was looking at the old Westminster Directory of Public Worship, where the burial of the dead was extraordinarily simple. When any person departeth this life, let the dead, bo let the dead body upon the day of burial be decently attended from the house to the place appointed for public burial, and there immediately interred, without any ceremony. 
In other words, not that there would be any superstition there. The directory goes on to say appropriate meditations and exhortations can come from the minister. But we are not to create a ceremony out of it, a superstitious kind of religious rite. The dead are dead. If anything, you are there to exhort the living to close with Christ. Nothing can change the eternal destination of one that is now dead and in the grave. And we have to recognize that. That will give us an urgency on Friday, I pray, as we go to proclaim the gospel. But our text, I think, also shows the futility of the Roman Catholic system of prayers for the dead. Christ says, let the dead bury the dead. That's it. Nothing can be done for them now that they are dead. Leave them alone. That said, friends, when you think on a funeral, you have to ask yourself, have you planned for yours? And I don't mean logistically. I mean spiritually. Death comes for us all. Boys and girls, no matter how young you are, all of us will one day meet our maker in death. We will either meet him in Christ or we will meet him outside of Christ. And it is likely, likely that this man's father was spiritually dead as those who buried um, him were. That's why he says, let the dead bury the dead. In which case then, what is the point in all the ostentatious speeches and rituals? It's over. He has been judged by God. So for you, all of you, you are not to go to the grave spiritually dead. You are to go to the grave spiritually alive in Christ. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Whosoever believeth in him shall never die. And he asks you now, believest thou this? Do you believe this? Do you believe in him? If you do, you will never die. In fact, when you die, and I, I praise God for this, you will be more alive on the day of your death than you have ever been before. In the presence of Christ, sin removed from you totally and completely from your soul. And that is the beauty of death to the believer. Alive in a way that you have never been before. But there is urgency here, as Christ had to this man. You are to go immediately to the Lord. Today is the day of salvation in the scriptures. Go to Christ now. Do not put him off. Close with him. Receive him now. There is no more pressing business, even burying your own father, than closing with Christ this moment. And this, if you think on it that way, is the glorious message the man was called to preach. Now, you understand what is more important than bearing his dead father. So let's conclude with our final heading, which is committing to the king. The third man is in verses 61 and 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at uh, home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This man pledges to follow Christ but, he says, sometime in the future, I'll do it. I have business to take care of at home first before I accept your call. I must go and say goodbye to my family first. This is when Jesus responds. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back 
is fit for the kingdom of God. And there are two allusions here. The first is agricultural, and the second is the Old Testament scripture. So first, the agricultural allusion. If you put your hand to the plow, you start plowing, and you look back, boys and girls, what will the line that you create be like? It'll be crooked, won't it? It'll be crooked and wavering. And so too is the labor of those who look backwards and not forward to the calling of Christ. Particularly for gospel ministers, as you think you hear, who are called to forsake all and not look back, not yearn for your old life. You know, this afflicts not just the ministers, but even every Christian at some point who has been converted later in life thinks on their old life and thinks, maybe I should go back or maybe I should bring a portion of that back with me. It says, don't look back. You're called to forsake all. You're not to remember, especially when life seemed much easier and there wasn't conflict with sin and the world and the devil. Called to pursue Christ with a singular focus. And in the ministry, many men leave the ministry when it becomes hard, when there are rocks in the field that have to be plowed. And it's not straight and easy to them. Very tempting to turn back to the pew and away from the pulpit. But the same goes to every disciple. The race you run is meant to be run straight ahead, looking unto Jesus. Never looking back at the world. You're not to be like, who does Christ tell you boys and girls to remember? Lot's wife. Not to be like Lot's wife, to look back to Sodom. You cannot make it to heaven, having your hand, one hand on the plow and looking backwards. You're not going to go in a straight line towards the prize. We take up Philippians three twelve through 14. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of in Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have uh, apprehended, but this one thing I do. What is that? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Having begun, we don't look back like Lot's wife or you remember, was I believe maybe over a year ago, we looked at the man, the minister named Demas. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved what? This present world. 2 Timothy 4.10 Brethren, don't look back. No matter what is before you, no matter if it seems like Satan and his entire horde, all the world, the entire U.S. government, China, whatever, stands in the way of you and glory. Your own sinfulness, you are not to look back, you are not to turn back, you are to look to Christ. Christ says those who do are, here are the critical words, not fit for the kingdom of God. Solemn words. The second illusion is biblical. The calling of Elisha by Elijah. You remember, boys and girls, when Elisha was called by Elijah to be a prophet, Elisha had this request for Elijah. 1 Kings 19. Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. To which Elijah said, Go back again, for what I have I done to thee? And he grants Elisha the request. And so maybe the man had Elisha in view when he asks Christ for permission to go back home. Now, why is it that Elisha's request is granted, but Christ denies this man? 
Well, it must be a difference of purpose in the two men. You know, Elisha, you get the sense that he, his was meant to be a quick goodbye, a kiss on the cheek, so to speak. Let me just kiss you and I'm off. I am following the Lord. Uh, 1 Kings 19, he, Elisha, Elisha, returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. He begins his ministry, arose, went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Maybe Christ doesn't see this kind of resolve in the man. Maybe he is halting between two opinions. Perhaps his goodbye kiss would not be a goodbye at all. But instead, he would take care of business in the home and be ensnared there and tempted to stay with his family. So to spur the man on, he says, don't look back at your family. Follow me completely. Now, with two of these three men, it's a solemn thing. You see that family was the snare, wasn't it? Some of you know this experientially that at times you have lost family for the sake of following Jesus. And maybe that weighs heavy on you. And let me say, beloved, even before I continue, um, you need to remind your soul that whatever I give up, I have given up for Christ who gave up everything for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that is why I live the life that I now live, as the apostle said. But he also promises you much more than what you lose. In Mark 10, 28, we read, Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left how much? We have left all and have followed thee. What was Christ's response, brethren? Verily I say unto you, so truly I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. Peter, you have left all for the sake of persecution. You have left your home, your family, your lands for my sake and the gospel. In exchange, I have given you, I understand this, persecution. Persecution not just from the world, but also from family. But Peter is it not worth it? You receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the world to come eternal life. Brethren, in this life you may have lost and left all your goods and relations, but you gain a hundredfold even this moment, don't you? You gain a world of brethren. He says, I have replaced your brethren. I have replaced your sisters. I have replaced your brothers. I have replaced your mothers. In the church, you have now friends that stick closer than a brother. And in the world to come, you have eternal life. And how is that summed up? In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is his promise and that is his pledge to you, believer. And this is the bargain. You follow Christ, you may lose what is in, the, in the, the long term going to be seen as nothing really, even if it is your father and your mother. But you will gain as a disciple of Christ more than the entire world. You will gain Christ, you will gain his body, you will gain everlasting life with joy in the presence of God forever. Lose a few things, gain far much more. 
And friend, if you're an unbeliever and you have been saying, well, salvation then seems to come with strings attached, I guess you can see it this way. But Christ says, right, no, I give you salvation freely. There's no fine print. In other words, you know, you might think there's fine print in that. Uh, You must lose all. No, Christ says, not really. You gain far, far more than you lose. Not only do you gain him, which should be enough, you gain his people. You gain the world to come. And is that loss, friend? No. That is great gain. As I said in the beginning, we don't have a record of the response of these three men. A device used by the Holy Ghost. So put yourselves in their shoes. Will you be like those in John 6, 66? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus asks you as he asked the 12, will ye also go away? I say, don't go to your father's funeral. I say that you're going to have contention. You have to leave home and you have to leave family. Will ye also go away? What you must do is say what Peter said. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Say as Peter, Lord, we have left all to follow thee. Christian, one last exhortation. Remember your Lord when it seems like you are giving up a lot for his sake. For your own sake, he gave up all. He had no place to lay his own head. He will never call you to a more severe path than he himself trod to save you. And so for his own sake and for what he has done for you, say and resolve, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Let us leave Luke there for today and return next week, God willing, and let us arise to prayer, if able. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would give us the heart and resolve, no matter what, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, whithersoever he goest. Help us to be obedient little lambs following the good shepherd, whether he takes us through the valley of the shadow of death or he causes us to lay down in green pastures. May we go where he goes. May we hear his voice as the good shepherd. May his rod and staff comfort us. And so, Lord, we pray that if there are any here who have been wavering, who have halted between two opinions, that they would commit themselves to the Lord Jesus. If any here have not come to Christ for everlasting life, would you open their hearts to receive the gospel? And may this be the day of salvation. May they see the urgency of the text, that this is the first business that they must do. Not consult, not go to a committee, but to go to the Lord now. And would you cause them to come to Christ, knowing that whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Lord, would you bless this text to us, and may we walk by it into eternity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.